Thank you, Raleigh. So again, that was Matthew 5, 1 through 4. And it's also printed in the bulletin. Okay, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it gives us uh, comfort in times like this. And we pray that we would lean into that um, and trust you tonight, um, that you would work in us and show us uh, good things from your word, things to find hope in. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so if you were here last week, we had a different kind of week. The AC was out in here. You may remember we hung out in the lobby a lot. So it's actually been two weeks since I said that we are going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in the history of the whole world, um, in, in at least the first half of the semester here at RUF. But uh, because of what happened last week, we're going to skip forward just a little bit um, and really look at verse 4. And I'm not going to take the time to kind of introduce everything that's going on here and give you a bunch of context. All you really need to know for now is that uh, Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, took on flesh, came down, sat down, and began to teach. And so the first thing that comes out of his mouth here is a reference to the kingdom of heaven. And we will talk about that next week. But the second thing is this just baffling line. Uh, this is verse 4, when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, uh, what sort of God in flesh, or what sort of Messiah, what sort of prophet and teacher would, would say something like this? Blessed are those who mourn. I think only one who has come to die. And so um, this summer, uh, actually just a few weeks ago, so kind of late summer, uh, I visited Camp Mystic with my daughter. Shout out to all the Mystic folks here. Uh, only Kia was, though. Okay. Okay. There we go. Um, and so uh, we were talking to uh, the great folks that run the camp there, and they started talking about um, a, a grief camp that they do. And so it's actually the, kind of the, the last week of the summer, as I understand, with them. But a number of camps are doing this now, and some specialize in it, and uh, it's often for children. Okay? And so I was uh, kind of interested in this, and so I went and started reading a little bit about these grief camps. And one thing that stuck out to me from what I read is that at these grief camps, they swear off of any kind of euphemisms or, or platitudes about death. And here is why. Because for a child, a parent who is lost can be found, like anything else, right? And for a child, if you say, well, she's gone to a better place, then the child is wondering, what place could be better than here with me? And so along those lines, I want to be as clear as possible here that uh, Jesus did not come to pass away. Uh, we did not lose him because everything happens for a reason or so he could go to a better place or because heaven needed a carpenter or anything like that. Jesus came on purpose, head up, open eyed so that he could die, not to teach a lesson, but in, in order to rescue his people from their sins. And that is why he can say, blessed are those who mourn. 
for they shall be comforted. Because no one knows death like Jesus. Nobody else has fought it tooth and nail. Nobody else has conquered it and passed through to the other side. And therefore, no one else can bring comfort in times of death and grief and mourning like Jesus can. And so tonight, we are going to look at three times that Jesus encountered death. Um, There were more, but these are three scenes in which our greatest ally went just head-to-head with our greatest enemy. So the first is the story of Jesus and Lazarus from John 11. The second is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane from Matthew 26. And the third is the story of the empty tomb from John 20. So you, it, you may have noticed the cross itself is not on here. I'm not talking about that tonight. Uh, that is Jesus' ultimate encounter with death, of course, in many ways. But it looks like in the Bible that he was actually doing most of his wrestling with death in the garden. And so that's what we're going to look at. So Jesus and Lazarus, the Garden of Gethsemane, and then the empty tomb. Uh, let's look at the first of these. We're going to kind of skip down and around and through the text. These are not in your bulletin, um, so we can move quickly. But here's the gist of the story. John 11, 1 starts with, uh, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. And so Lazarus, along with his sisters, Mary and Martha, were friends of Jesus. And so uh, they send for Jesus. This is cry for help. And Jesus says in verse 4, He hears about it. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. And then he tells his disciples that Lazarus had fallen asleep. Quote, but I go to awaken him. And so interestingly, Jesus actually kind of takes his sweet time uh, getting there. And, And then we read verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for days. And so Mary and Martha are totally devastated. It is too late. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Okay, think about what is happening here in in this encounter between Jesus and death. In this encounter between the, the creator of the world and the thing that has wrecked our world. These are very ancient foes. Okay, uh, all the way back in Genesis, the very beginning of the story, we read that sin entered the world and death through sin. But Jesus does not merely say that he can resurrect the dead. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Okay, so uh, Tim Keller uh, talks about in, in his book, he has a very small, short book called On Death. And uh, he has one on birth and marriage as well. So very helpful stuff. Um, so in the little one on death, and, and many of you know, by the way, that he himself went to be with Jesus recently. But he says a couple things about uh, death. First, that uh, humans have always pushed back against it. Like we know how wrong it feels. 
We know how cruel and unusual it is. Many of us have experienced that feeling this week, right? But he also points out that, uh, unfortunately, our culture is very uniquely unprepared for it. Like we have developed a system where we hide it away in in hospitals or in hospices and, and we avoid it. Hence, like the euphemisms and the platitudes and some of our best and brightest minds out there, in fact, uh, even think that death can just sort of be conquered, like some sort of technological problem. At worst, our culture considers death just kind of a meaningless end to a uh, barely meaningful life. Because that is the nature of the universe, uh, with no creator and, and no telos, no end, no aim. And so I think for us, including me, in our time and culture, we really need outside help. Like, what do we do with death? And so here is what Jesus, the author of life, did. Verse 32 says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Okay, if you know like Bible trivia, you know that this is the shortest verse in the Bible, in English at least, that Jesus wept. He didn't just weep. It says, uh, when it says he was deeply moved in his spirit, he was greatly troubled. It means he was angry. In fact, it means he was outraged. And so the thing this made me think of uh, is from uh, Godfather Part 2, when Michael Corleone survives gunmen shooting into his bedroom. And of course, he is a mobster, right? He, He fought in World War II. He has killed people, and other people have tried to kill him, like, all the time. But at this, he, he is outraged. He starts screaming. I'm not going to scream right now. But he says, he says, in my home, in my bedroom where my wife sleeps, where my children come and play with their toys, in my home. And Jesus has some of this type of just indignation. Jesus is outraged. It is his friend that death has come for. But unlike us, he is not powerless. Okay, and and so it's really all the more striking that he wept and he raged when he had all of the power to reverse it and knew, in fact, that he would. So he goes to the tomb. He prays. He says, Lazarus, come out. I've heard people say that he had to say Lazarus because if he didn't specify then everybody would come out. I don't know if that's true. It might be. But verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So I would encourage you to take your cue from Jesus here that it is not okay. That death is terrible, that the poet Dylan Thomas had it right when he said, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And so even if you believe, even if you know, nobody knew better than Jesus, the truth of the resurrection, even then. And so what do you do with all those emotions? Um, I don't, you know, some of you, I, I know I have trouble feeling some of them in the first place, right? Um, but, but what do you do with them? The thing to do, I think, is to feel them and to feel them in a Godward direction. Because God can take all your pain and all your suffering. He can bear it. And here is why. Because of what we see in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. And this is our second part. 
It's no longer just a friend of Jesus. <clears throat> it's he himself. Now Jesus is facing death himself. And he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And again, there's language here of like very strong emotions. We don't really get this language um, often in scripture, in the narrative parts at least. It's kind of like a Cormac McCarthy novel. Most of the action is outward. And so we should pay attention when, like the Lazarus story, it says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He even tells his friend, um, well, he tells a number of his friends, uh, as you should probably, uh, my soul is very sorrowful. Then it says he goes a little ways and he falls down on his face. Okay. In other words, his, his body is overcome by his emotions. And Luke, uh, in his gospel, the, the physician, uh, tells us that Jesus' sweat fell like great drops of blood. And he begins to pray. It's not a happy prayer, okay? It's a, it's a flat-on-your-face type prayer. I've, I've actually only heard somebody pray like this one time in my life. And it was on my honeymoon, in fact, uh, in the Blue Ridge Mountains. I walked out onto a deck, and I could hear somebody down valley just, just wailing and weeping. And that is Jesus' prayer here. It's raw. It's full of pain. It's asking. He's begging even that God would, quote, let this cup pass from me. So what is wrong with Jesus here? I mean, doesn't he like trust the plan? Doesn't he know that God is good all the time? All the time God is good. Well, I would say this. It's not just that Jesus is about to die like you or like me. It's that he is looking at the cup. Okay, The cup is short for the cup of God's wrath. It's all of God's wrath that is distilled down. It's pictured as a cup in scripture. So here's what Psalm 75 says about it. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So Jesus is on his face, and he is sweating blood because he is going to drain the cup. We deserve it. According to the Bible, we are the ones that have broken God's law and done the things we ought not to have done and left undone the things that we ought to have done. But Jesus is going to drink all of it in order to save his people. And so the physical pain of the cross is really nothing compared with the spiritual pain that he is experiencing. And so he does it. He drinks it. Right after this, he's arrested, he's tried, he's wrongly convicted and crucified and, and wrapped up like Lazarus. Remember it said he was bound up with linen strips and his face was wrapped with a cloth. His face was wrapped with a cloth. Okay? And then he's put in a tomb. It's like this big cave-like tomb. Okay? Now, fast forward. The third, and for our purposes, the final encounter between Jesus and death comes from John 20. It says this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. And so Peter went out with the other disciples, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there in the face cloth, 
which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So Jesus came to die, but he did not come to stay dead. It was John, actually, John himself is writing this, who outran Peter to the tomb. But it was Peter who went in to the tomb and saw a, a very remarkable, literally, Easter egg here. Verse 7. I'm going to read it one more time. The face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Okay, here's what a, a writer named Patrick Henry Reardon says about this. It's a longer quote, so hang with me. <clears throat> that instant of the resurrection of Jesus was the most decisive moment in the history of the world. It was the event of deepest importance for every human who ever lived. The law and the prophets were fulfilled in that moment, and the existence of the human race took on an utterly new meaning. What, however, was the first thing Jesus did when the resurrection life came surging into his body? The simplest and plainest thing imaginable. He reached up, pulled the kerchief from his face, folded it, and set it aside, as though it had been a napkin used at breakfast. Those sacred hands from which every grace would flow into the church until the end of the world were first employed to fold a kerchief. The risen Lord was the same Jesus his friends had always known. He had just returned from the realm of hell where he trampled down death by death. He was on the point of going forth as a giant to run his course. He was about to begin appearing to his disciples, providing them with many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Nonetheless, he was still the same person whose instinctive habits remained identical. First, he took a moment to fold the kerchief he had used, and only then did he stride out to change the direction of history and transform the lives of human beings. Who called Jesus out of the tomb? No one. In John 10, Jesus had said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. How can Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted? It's because he is not in the tomb. It's because he is risen, because an old book title says that in the death of Christ, we see the death of death. And so Christians do not grieve without hope because of the resurrection. A resurrection hope is only for those who have seen their own sin and the death that is tied to it and have thrown themselves on Jesus. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not really just talking about mourning sin and death out there. He's talking about it in here as well. And that is why, remember he said to Martha, he said, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So how do we know that we have hope? For one, because the face cloth was folded. It's like a clue. It's like a fingerprint that it was him. That, that, that Jesus is going to take our broken bodies, our broken relationships, our hearts, even death itself, and he is going to fold them up. And he is going to set them right. I want you to think about the tenderness here. 
Uh, this kerchief, this face cloth, did not have a mom and a dad. It didn't have a soul. It didn't have dreams and desires. And so if Jesus would care enough about the face cloth to fold it up, then how much more does he care about you and your suffering? There is no limit to what he is willing to set right in your life if he was willing to set right the face cloth. My friend Brian Sword and Fry um, points out, we'll close with this, that in uh, C.S. Lewis's the, <clears throat> the Magician's Nephew, which is in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series, um, he says this, Diggory, the main character, is in Narnia, but throughout his adventure in Narnia, one thing is always looming in his mind. His mother is deathly ill back in our world, and he keeps thinking that this Aslan character will be the key to healing her. And so he finally encounters Aslan and just blurts out almost uncontrollably, please, please, won't you cure mother? And then the story says that Diggory looked up and saw something that surprised him more than anything else in his whole life. The great and fierce lion, wonder of wonders, his head was bent down and great, big, shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were so big compared to Diggory's that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Jesus was sorrier about Lazarus than even Mary and Martha He was sorrier than us about our own sins that he bore on the cross. And he is sorrier about our friend Wes Smith than even we can imagine. Jesus wept, but he wept as the Lion of Judah. He wept as the one who would face down death himself. The one who gives us hope even when we can't feel it ourselves. And so it might not be today, it might not be this week, it might not be anytime soon, but I promise you, he will fold it up and he will set it right. And that's why even in our grief, we have unshakable hope. Let me pray for us.